0: Welcome to season two of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Welcome to the podcast, Sean Callagher. Sean comes to us as Chief Compliance Officer at Manhattanville College and also the current president of ASCA. Hello, Sean. Hi, Jill. I am really excited to talk to you today about your vision for the association going forward, but also just kind of about your general student conduct philosophy. For listeners, Sean and I have known each other for probably a decade or so, watched each other go from um, kind of mid-level and junior roles in student conduct to very different spaces where we are today. So, Sean, would you mind sharing with us how you got here? Sure.
1: Um, sure. I'll try to do that in a in a brief way. So, yeah. So, um uh, just uh assumed the role of president of asca and um you know asca has kind of been a a constant presence i guess throughout my my professional journey i think i, I owe a lot to that affiliation with the association um, i guess in in short you know educationally i i uh i did my ba- my bachelor's at george mason university in virginia i went to law school after that uh, at cornell and and i really had no No thought that I would be entering higher ed as a field um, and or student affairs in particular and really just through conversations with you know, mentors and, and kind of assessing where I wanted to go and I decided to make a shift really before, right after I got out of law school and went into a master's program in higher ed at Old Dominion uh, University down in Virginia again uh, and there is where I connected with uh, our, the grad program director at the time, Dennis Gregory who was a past president of ASCA and I worked for him for a couple of years and uh, he made it very much a part of my job that I join ASCA and get involved um, and that kind of started my, my journey throughout the profession. But um, from there, I started, uh, first time, I guess, professional role uh, was at uh, Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. Uh, I started as an assistant director of student conduct and left there as the associate director. Um, I was there for three years, and then I spent almost nine years at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, uh, where I grew up. I'm from Connecticut originally, and I was started there as an assistant dean of students and really Focused solely really on student conduct and and overseeing their conduct system. And uh, by the time I left, I was associate dean and also served as deputy Title IX coordinator. And uh, it kind of shifted a bit in terms of um, you know we had uh, more staff that was working on student conduct and also just really kind of my focus areas kind of became a little bit broader within student affairs and, and particularly with Title IX as that grew in. Uh, in importance and grew in the amount of time we had to spend in terms of managing that system and um, you know, cases and education, everything that goes along with that. Um, so for the past, just a little over a year now, I've been at Manhattanville College um, in uh, Westchester County, New York. Uh, so I serve here as the Chief Compliance Officer and as the Title IX Coordinator. Um, and it's been a, a, a really a really interesting shift from being really student affairs focused to being institutionally focused. And, you know, I think part of what helped carry me through that is really being as a student conduct professional, you know, we are by design folks who are problem solvers. We, um, our lens fits in a lot of different areas, uh, particularly, you know, I do have a, you know, a legal background, but also just a, a background of writing policy and interpreting policy and, and working through difficult situations. And, you know, as someone who works as a compliance officer at a small college, that's really what I do. It's, uh, uh, people come to me with kind of difficult questions and thorny problems, and I try to help them see through that, and whether that be through the lens of whatever, whether it be through the lens of federal or state regulations, or just saying, like, hey, what's the, here's our policy, what's the best way to To approach this issue you know given what our policy states, and so I do a lot of that campus and it's it's been it's been enjoyable to kind of work now from a institutional level working with uh you know other vice presidents and other folks who you know serve on our president's cabinet to see you know what exactly it is we need to do to move our institution forward um, yeah, as a group so you know that it, it's been interesting over the past decade or or more to kind of go from that very low-level view of student conduct uh, you know, as an assistant director and just hearing case after case and just, just kind of doing the work and now really being kind of at a 30,000-foot level uh, viewing things really systemically. And, and uh, um, I, I think, you know, folks who work in student conduct, you know, have that kind of unique ability to do that because we're kind of both in the weeds and we can be out looking at things because we're working with systems all the time and, and evaluating them and seeing ways to make them better. So I, I think that's kind of a unique thing that that. You know, folks who are in our profession can bring it to the table, and it gives us a lot of options uh, as we look, kind of career-wise, where we can go, whether that's within student affairs or opportunities that are in higher ed but outside of it a bit. Um, so it's, it's it's kind of where 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 I've gone, and you know, asca has been kind of the linchpin throughout all those moves. And you know, I met my my supervisors from Roger Williams and at. Quinnipiac, the first time I had conversations with them were at ASCA conferences that's how I met them and kind of got my foot in the door to go do interviews on those campuses so you know ASCA's done a lot for me and I'm hopefully I'm hopeful to give back to the association to to try to repay some of that
0: And can you tell us about how you got to the president's seat uh, you've talked about ASCA being a pretty constant thread in your journey and I'm curious kind of how did that all start and how did you grow into the role
1: Uh well, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've been lucky to be at, at institutions that are supportive, you know, of, of involvement uh, in, within professional associations. And I know sometimes that's that's difficult. And, and, you know, when we're doing work for associations and as a volunteer leader, you know, we're, we're, we're taking time from somewhere. And that could be uh, from your institution. Also, you know, you're, you're kind of borrowing time from friends and family and and other obligations you may have. But, you know, Roger Williams and and Quinnipiac and Manhattanville have been uh, you know, all very supportive of of working with as my working with ASCA. Um, I think early on, I served as a grad assistant uh, at the conference. Of, I think it was back in 2006, um, and from there, I just looked for opportunities to get involved. Uh, you know, I, having working up in New England, uh, we had very active kind of local events, and so you know, getting involved in driving conferences, things along those lines, and helping organize those, or working you know, up in New England, there are lots of other regional associations that we were able to partner with and put on events. And from there, uh, my my initial kind of window into ASCA leadership was through the conference committee and worked on the conference committee for several years and eventually chaired the conference in 2014. For two years after that, I served as our co-chair for our public policy and legislative issues committee, which in 2014-15 was a really interesting time to do that. Um, given all the activity that was going on uh, in Washington and at the state level uh, with Title IX related matters and so that
0: did something significant happen in 2014
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah a couple things so it was it was it was, uh, it was uh, a uh, it was definitely an interesting time to to be involved in that work um, and then running for the board of directors and uh, um, you know I had one unsuccessful run that, that you're aware of Jill so when we, we ran against each other uh, back in twenty for the it would have been it was the 2013 elections for the 2014 to start in 2014, um, but I ran again. I served for two years as treasurer um, and, and now going through my three-year commitment uh, through the presidency track.
0: I'm so excited to see what you do with the association. Uh, obviously, it's a weird time in our profession. Actually, I'm not really sure it's not ever not a weird time.
1: Uh, <laughs> it <laughs> but- just depends on what's making it weird. Right.
0: This year, what's making it weird is this very ambiguous sense of what might be next from the Department of Ed, Um, but that also doesn't take away from what we do for the core of our profession in terms of development of students and decision-making and accountability with young people. So, I'm hoping you can share a little bit about where you see the 2019-2020 board going, uh, what that vision might be, and how you plan to lead us.
1: Sure. Well, I, I think you know the, the first place to start is really that the president really is is it's not about necessarily one person's vision of what ASCA should be. It's you know I think over the past several years and the presidency has really evolved into really being a steward of what the board's priorities are, um, and and that's been I think very successful over the past several years, um, the past several presidencies, including yours, in terms of what you know, that vision is really a shared one. It's, you know, I don't come in saying like, here's what we're going to do just in my year and then whoever's after me can do what they want. That doesn't really serve the association well um, in terms of, you know, how we keep continuity and and kind of achieve long-term goals. Um, So, you know, for for a large part, you know, what we've seen over the past couple of years, particularly when it comes to how do we open up opportunities that the association has and you know we really do acknowledge that the you know our programs and uh from the conference to the Garing academy to other events we put on provide lots of professional opportunities for our uh members to really highlight you know, the fact that we have a lot of experts in our association that have a lot to share. And so, you know, we've done a lot of work over the past couple of years to open up those opportunities to as wide a net as people as possible. And we have more work to do in that regard, but that's something we need to continue. And I think it's been to the great benefit of the association the past couple of years, um, you know, to see new folks and new names, you know, in some of our um, you know, really, primary positions in terms of you know coffers presenting and gearing faculty and things along those lines. So that will definitely continue. Um, you know, I think you referenced kind of it's a weird time for the profession. Um, you know, it's you know what the what what was released from the Department of Education related to Title IX. You know, while focused on Title IX, has really op- you know put a lot of questions out there in terms of what does the future of our profession look like, uh, and you know. ASCA needs to be in a position to be ready to not necessarily, not only answer that or, or help our members through that, but in order to, to really talk about what we do. Um, and and I think that's a, if there's a big focus of mine. It's how do we better talk to folks who aren't our members about what the realities are on our campuses and what does the work of student conduct look like? And, you know, it's, you know, as an association, I really started really focusing on, um, you know, folks who ran kind of the, the what used to be termed judicial offices or, or sometimes deans of students, you know, our the term student conduct encompasses so much more now. Uh, and we've we see that in our membership list in terms of. Uh, you know, it's we have folks who are kind of serving those traditional roles as directors of conduct or assistant or associate directors and coordinators who just do the day-to-day casework and meet with students, you know, you know, many a week to going through and just and doing that work. And a lot of us have done that. Um, but you know, we also have a lot of professionals that wear multiple hats um, who have student conduct as part of their responsibility with other things and particularly our colleagues who work at community colleges. And we've seen a lot of like kind of multifaceted professionals that have student conduct as like a, one of like their suite of things <laughs> that they have to do on their campuses. Um, but beyond that, even, you know, we have our folks who work in title nine, you know, there are more folks like me who have broader compliance roles, either within student affairs or institutionally, um, that we, excuse me, that we see, you know, in the association, um, People doing case management work, um, threat assessment, and behavioral intervention work, um, and how that connects with other areas of campus, like uh, you know working with students, student accommodations, and things along those lines. Those are all student conduct areas, and that doesn't even go to mention all the folks who do work within student organization with with student organizations and how conduct processes interact with those areas. I know we have good relationships with our colleagues in the fraternity and sorority world, but you know we also you know we have a lot of our student conduct folks who maybe their primary role is just doing organizational conduct at some of our campuses. So there are so many different facets to what our work is and you know, I think from my perspective is that we need to we need to find better ways to talk about that and to present that information not only to our members but uh, to folks who have a vested interest in what we do but aren't the folks who are ASCA members who do the work day to day. Um, So, you know, that's, if there's, I think that's something that we've always kind of struggled with, you know, not just as an association, but as a profession, is really talking about what the work looks like because it's so institutionally based. I mean, conduct processes are very much wedded to, and very much connected to institutional history, institutional values, and, you know, how do we look at that in terms of what does a normal system look like? How do we make sure our systems value equity inclusion within them, particularly because of some of those historical ties and what that may lead with the kind of the, uh, um, the outcomes that may come out of those systems. So there's a there's a lot of different lenses here we need to look at, and it's I've been really thinking about how do we present that out, and how do we talk about things in a different way, um, and you know to do that we just need to be be able to collect that information, and you know really be front and, front forward face forward with our data, and about sharing with our members and others this is what the profession looks like, and maybe by doing that we can also dispel some dispel some myths that folks have about student conduct and how things operate on colleges and universities.
0: When you talk about uh, this idea, of, I frame it as telling our story and something that, you know, we've been having conversations in the boardroom about for a very long time. I'm mm-hmm. curious how you frame that on your home campus now. So going from the expert on student conduct to now being a person who's looking at the much broader picture as a cabinet-level position now, how would you encourage folks in the profession in the weeds to frame their stories for their senior administration? Hmm.
1: You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think I think a lot of it has to do framing it also framing it within the lens of the student experience. I mean, I think that's something that I know I talk about quite a bit. You know, at, at uh, in my institution, of you know when we're when we look at a process or a system, you know, is this designed for the convenience of the people, of, of the staff and faculty, or is this designed for the convenience of the students who are really, you know, we don't have an institution without students. So, and that not only within student conduct, but I ask that a lot about a lot of things. Probably it may sometimes aggravate some of my colleagues when I, when I do that because it's, you know, maybe that's also kind of coming out of a student affairs lens. Like that's what I'm looking at. Um, you know, but it, it's I, – I, I've also, you know, tried to use student conduct as a as a example of other things, too. To say, like, you know, when we talk about um, – in terms of, you know, for instance, looking at faculty or staff processes, and I've also often kind of said, like, listen, we, we do this already in student conduct. Like, you've got staff on this campus that do this work and understand how to do it. So if you want to know how to build this system, go ask them. You know, they – They've gone through some of these these growing pains that you're going through, and I think particularly with some of the new Department of Education directives, you know, it's actually been a, a I've been able to elevate that conversation and say, listen, we need to have a we need to connect all these different processes on campus and take a look at them like holistically like what are we providing you know if, if we're gonna have for instance increased due process requirements you know that's not likely that that's just gonna be contained within the title nine zone you know that's you know I think one of the big things that we're all preparing for is the possibility that these expectations may go from there to regular student conduct but are we talking about academic integrity which on my campus is run by the faculty not by student affairs you know are we talking about um, our employees processes, and you know, usually when you go back to that, your student processes are more are closer to being aligned with some of those principles than sometimes your other ones are. So, how do you start that conversation? Um, because you know, those expectations when they when they hit, like you know, particularly for small colleges and community colleges, like how are you going to be able to process all of that with what the possible expectations might be? Um, And so those are, I I think I've found that folks are receptive to those conversations. But, you know, I I also acknowledge that sometimes you don't have somebody that sits in that room that has that connection to to student conduct and that kind of work. Um, So, you know, obviously, you know, if we have members here who are, you know, trying to, have leadership on their campus to know more about what we do you know it's 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 sharing our resources It's making sure you know you obviously you can't make someone read something or listen to something but you know making sure that that it gets front and center in front of somebody like you know for instance you know, the webinar we did about Title IX, um, the the proposed regulations in December, I mean, that's free and it's the link is out there and anyone can listen to it. Um, So we, you know, that's not locked down just for members. It's where we wanted to be sure that that was out there, you know, for kind of public consumption and so it can be part of that larger conversation.
0: How do we uh, get a hold of that webinar if we're interested?
1: Um, it's on the ASCA website, so I believe it's um, it should be there kind of in our in our library of information. It's to, to my knowledge, it should be open to the public. You don't have to be a member to access it.
0: That is really, really valuable. And, you know, where we're at in space and time, the comment period um, either has just closed or is just about to close. Uh, so as we move forward with that, uh, I don't want to spend too much time digging around in the guidance, but what do you foresee happening now?
1: It's it's a good question. I, mean, I, I don't know how long the department's going to take to assess all of the comments. Um, I think at the time we were, were doing this recording, there were something close to 50,000 comments um, that were made. Uh, so I know the department's going to have to go through those. I mean, they don't have to answer each one of them individually, but they do need to answer the concerns that were brought up in them. So how they decide to do that will be interesting to see I mean, they solicited comments on certain topics within the regulations. I think it's interesting to see what those topics are and also which ones aren't on the list. You know, they weren't really soliciting comments about, for instance, you know, the due process provisions that they put into the regulations. So that may not be something they're willing to budge on. Um, So, but we'll see. I I don't know. I mean, I know there's a lot of advocacy groups out there, um, you know, really encouraging people to, uh, to submit comments, um, and so I don't know how much how movable the department is on certain areas. So we'll just have to see. Um, I am hopeful that certain some things may be clarified. Um, you know, and if, and if you listen to our webinar, there was a, there were some questions that were posed about you know, you know we're not really sure what what they mean by this, um, or you know to the extent that they that they interpret this particular uh, provision, you know how far it goes. Um, so those hopefully some of those will be clarified because you know. We'd much rather have that clarified now than have to wait for an institution to be told either by OCR or the courts that they're doing it wrong. Um, you know when it may be a bit unclear up front. So so we'll just have to see and, and the other part of that will be what the implementation date is. Um, so when they do release them, you know, they'll come with an effective date and you know, will that be for next academic year? Will they push it back farther? It's it's kind of unclear right now what that timetable looks like.
0: One of the conversations I had on a different episode of the podcast is uh, about this idea of an extraordinary tone shift on how we educate our students about what our policies are, what they can expect from reporting, um, et cetera. So I'm wondering with your chief compliance hat and Title IX coordinator hat on, can you talk about how you're kind of starting to process through how you'll need to retool the presentation of our policies to our campuses?
1: (laughs) yeah it's and it's uh, i think it 's not even retooling how we present it 's also retooling who presents and in what way you know the, there's a the, the, that tone that you referenced within the within the the guidance you really focuses on bias amongst the folks who are involved in the process um so it really opens that question of you know what does what can the title coordinate if you're a talent coordinator you know that 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 guidance you know if it's if it's kept as is or primarily or mostly as is really puts a talent coordinator in a position where you're you know i mean talent coordinators aren't aren't advocates in the sense anyway that they're they're not a victim advocate they they operate a process and they're um you know they need to make sure that processes are equitable and fair for all that go that are involved in it um but you know it does throw up some caution flags for folks who may serve as coordinators in terms of how you can present materials and that that impartiality lens that they are really focusing on that they really really push that message over and over and over in the guidance about impartiality so you know and it's been seen a little bit in court cases too about you know sometimes a you know, an investigator or a judge has been, or oh, sorry, an investigator or a staff member has been. You know, well, they may be biased because they did a presentation on something like rape culture or something along those lines, so they may be biased against respondents. So th- it's those type of things that I think staff need to be conscious of. And so that that question becomes like, you know, can the talent coordinator do a presentation beyond just talking about your reporting options? And does that need to be somebody else who talks about other topics? You know, so I don't necessarily know what that answer is, but I definitely know that these are things that we need to think about um, because proposed regulations are very focused on bias issues and, and bias uh, by the people making decisions. Um, and, and uh, you know, the focus on training materials and making those accessible, you know, that's, that all goes into that, that concern that the department has. Um, so it's, it's and I know sometimes, you know, on campus, particularly small ones, you know, folks who serve as coordinators, deputy coordinators, wear a lot of hats in that context. And they're often out there kind of doing presentations or, you know, presenting in front of advocacy groups or student orgs that work in that front. And so that question's out there whether that's, whether that's doable under the current, you know, proposed regulations.
0: And fascinating, too, because uh, I struggled with that from a perspective of, there's already bias in our society, and a lot of the work that had been done to talk about things like rape culture or trauma-informed investigation practices was to balance the bias that already existed. Uh, and so, I, I find it fascinating that there's uh, seemingly a lack of equity in the law about equity in some spaces. So, I'm wondering what you thought about that.
1: Well, I mean, that goes that that, that goes back to the you know the root of of the the regulations to start with in terms of it's really, you know, about the perspective of the, of who's writing them. Um, you know, it's been very clear from the outset that the department of education has been very focused on the respondent experience. Um, you know, and so, and and whether that's the detriment of a, of a complaining experience, you know, that's, you know, I I don't, I can't state whether that's the case or not yet until we kind of see what the, what the final regs are. And at the time of the time that we're, we're recording, this is, uh, you know we don't know what those are yet um you know it's 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 a it's a tough question to answer um and i think part of one of the one of the struggles a lot of campuses will have too is that we you know we have a lot of states that have you know instituted the obama era regulations into their state laws and regulations and um i work in one of them and and so in new york and you know how does that kind of push and pull from the federal government and the states play out. Um, And so we're kind of still evaluating that. (laughs) How does this, how does this affect our processes? Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very clear the perspective in which, in which the, uh, the regulations were drawn and even that, even the piece related to, you know, I know we we're, you know, in a lot of trainings and, and in presentations and out there and kind of even kind of popular discourse is the conversation about false reporting. And, um, you know, the that reports are, um, the incidence of false reporting is, is statistically small, you know, but also the regulations put out there very clearly that you can't ascribe any credence to whoever, whatever role someone inhabits in the process. Um, so if someone is a complainant, the fact that they're complaining, you know, can't be given extra weight because they are the complaining. Um, So it seems like some of these points that have been brought up over the past several years and really pushed out there into the popular conversation are are, are rebutted in kind of indirect ways, but rebutted nonetheless within the regulations when you read through them.
0: So we spent some time in the Title IX realm, and that's where the student conduct focus has been drawn significantly over the last five years or so. Uh, But kind of zooming out a bit, where do you see student conduct going in terms of student learning or the problems that we're seeing on our campuses uh, in the next couple of years?
1: It's a good question. I, I think where we see student conduct going is how it's integrated into other areas. You know, there are, you know, not to say student conduct isn't a standalone professional function with the student affairs, but that, you know, it's difficult for us to do our work without collaborating with multiple areas to do our work in the best way we can. Um, that means not just your title nine folks, which we we've talked about a lot, that you know, there is that connection between student conduct and that work. Um, but I think particularly when working with students with disabilities and, and the professionals that do that work and how we, uh, how we work together with those professionals to make sure that we're doing right by our students who are going through our disciplinary processes who may, you know, have documented disabilities that they receive accommodations for. Uh, I think that's a a large piece. And also how student conduct works within our threat assessment and behavioral intervention realms, Um, particularly when we talk about issues related to interim measures, um, you know, if a student is judged to be a threat on a campus, like how do we do that? What's the appropriate process for that? And who's involved in that conversation? Um, so I think part of that is how, you know, student conduct has, connecting points into all those areas. And as I referenced before, into our student organization areas and working with student conduct related to uh, student clubs and orgs. You know, these are you know, this kind of a, a spider web of connectors that come out from student conduct to so many different spaces. And, and you know, that's really I think one of the most interesting things about the work we do, and also one of the things that that I think our individual professionals can, um, can really put out there the most is that, you know, there are so many transferable skills and experiences that you can collect as a student conduct administrator and a student conduct staff member that, you know, gives a lot of different Opportunities for folks to you know, not only interact with different areas of campus but to pick up that experience that makes it possible to you know maybe have new professional op- opportunities open to you um, so I think that's that 's where that where that 's going in, um in terms of kind of some of the work that we do but I think also you talked about student learning and um, and yeah the, this we need to we, we need to be confident in having that conversation uh, that student conduct is an educational process because I think the more we default to just, not to say we shouldn't focus on process pieces, but if that's all we talk about, then that's what really we're going to become, is just kind of process managers. Um, And then that may make our profession look very different 10 years from now than it does now. Um, So we need to really be able to confidently speak about Conduct officers as educators, um, and maybe part of that too is just looking at you know, I, I know you know for for folks like us that have been you know kicking around ASCA for a number of years, you know before the Title IX focus happened really around 2011, you know one of the biggest focuses we saw if you went to our conferences and in around ASCA circles was the was looking at alternative dispute and restorative justice. And so, um, you know, how does that conversation become kind of stronger again within our profession? Um, and in fact, that, that is one thing that's kind of been focused on a bit too, even in, the, even in the Title IX guidance is looking at informal resolution. So how do we kind of connect those pieces to, to talk more about that again? Um, because it was, it was a big conversation in our profession for a few years. And not to say that that conversation stopped, but it got overshadowed by other things.
0: Well, Sean, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about ASCA itself. Most of our members have been in the profession and in the association for under, I think it's under three years or under five years. And so folks like you and I are actually quite rare now, (laughs) having stuck around a little while. Um, And I think that's always our goal, right, is that people get the skills that they need and then they elevate out, Um, they elevate into dean roles or um, other parts of the profession that compliance, like what you're doing. So if I'm a newer professional, what steps should I be taking now to make sure that I'm setting myself up for success not only in my day-to-day job but also in the association?
1: I think I think a uh yeah, you know, a good step obviously, you know, going to going to plug it. We I, we should join ASCA. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh is is you know, I know as that when as a young professional, like one of the things you know you, is is kind of digesting the materials that we put out there. I know we put out kind of weekly law and policy pieces, and 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 also looking at what regional opportunities are open for you. I mean, that's such a a, a uh, you know we don't talk about that I think enough at the national level when we're talking about ASCA, but you know, there's a lot of regions and states out there that do great work and have both formal and informal get-togethers and connections. And I think that if anything that kind of draws folks to ACA, it's those connections. So it's it's whether that's through someone on your campus, if you're an assistant director, coordinator, or portrait director, it's, you know, how do I, what's the best way for me to connect with the other conduct professionals in our area? Um, and that may be through in-person meetings or maybe an, a listserv and maybe just an email group that folks are asking questions and just talking about you know things that are coming that are happening on their campuses and getting feedback on uh, on trends and policies and whatnot. And I think a lot of those informal connections are what really strengthens ASCA uh, is is you know maybe going to an event and then when you walk out you've got a few folks that you know now that you can chat with maybe in your area or maybe they may be across the country. Um, and that's a huge benefit in an area where we know that a lot of our professionals are one person shows on their campuses or they have very small offices. You know, we're not like res life. We're not like student activities where there's often a large structure built in, you know, for student conduct. Some institutions do have that, but it's, that's, that's more the exception than the rule. Um, so it's finding folks that kind of like, like institutions, whether that be regionally or, or institution type um, and, in terms of really, if you're looking for that first introductory piece into the association, um, you know we, we talk a lot about the conference, but what we found is that the Garing Academy you know, in the summer is is really is is often more often someone's first foray to ASCA. Um and. You know, doing that, if you're a new professional in in student conduct, doing the foundations track, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, I know I did it myself back in 2000, summer of 2006, and I'm still connected with folks that I was in that track with. Um, And that's really been, I think, the experience for, you know, hundreds of our members, that they've gone to that event and they've walked out with a group of folks that they've still, they stay connected with. and when you even if you if you have the opportunity to go to our conference you know volunteer you know that's that's one of the easiest ways just to you know it's the you thing know, you can do it usually online before the conference even starts and you know that's a great way to just connect with meet some new folks and you know, make connections and, and kind of find out what that avenue is if you're interested in doing conference committee or or finding about other things that might be going on in your region or or within the association itself
0: so I'll give a quick plug to my favorite region, uh, regional folks, which is the Bacon Group, um, just because I think the name is funny, <laughs> and I'm a vegetarian, but I still love this bacon group. Um, it's the Bay Area Conduct Officer Network. So anyone like Oakland, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, or not Santa Cruz, uh, San Jose, sorry. So um, I'm just going to give them a shout out because I think their name is right.
1: Well, yeah, and it's it's I, and I think that's one of the one of the good things about ASCA too is that you know we you know, we do have a region and state structure, but at the same time you know we're open to letting our members be flexible and how they make those those connections, particularly regionally. You know, it's hard when. You know, as someone who has spent most of my professional career in New England, you know, we don't really spend a lot of time separated the states. We kind of get together as a region uh, because we're pretty much most of us are in driving distance to each other. So when the event happened, it wasn't like Massachusetts was running it, it's this New England is running it um and that's different though in the state like California where you know you're not going to have you know a california meeting you know for a large it's like a national conference everyone has to travel in um so having those kind of regional connections i know it's the you know Florida is always very active you know we have colleagues up in Michigan that have been very active um you know the d c area so it, there's there's there are pockets around there and it's um you yeah, know it's it's easier in some areas than in others but uh you know if if you if you're in an area where maybe there may not be a lot of ACA folks around, then, you know, connect with, you know, if you're, if you're able to connect with the association, go to one of our events, you know, find some of those folks and, and keep that electronic communication going. Because I think that's where a lot of the, the, the connectivity of the association comes from. It's, it's yes, it's to the association, but it's often just amongst all of us who do the work.
0: So, Sean, as we wrap up our time together, um, do you have any final guiding thoughts for our members or for student conduct professionals? Well, <laughs> the wide <open> door, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I would just say I, I'm, you know, I'm thankful that there's folks that do the work. Um, it's often can be thankless, and it's really difficult. Um, and A, what ASEA has done for me is helped me know that there are folks out there that I can connect with, even if it's just event um, just to say, you know, I'm dealing with this on my campus, and it's really difficult. And knowing that I've made some of those those connections that allow me to have that network of support, because it's, you know, it's, you know, the support network for folks who do our work sometimes is is not on your campus; it's somewhere else. And so, an ASCA, I think has done a good job of trying to provide that um, for our members. And so, just know that, you know, you know, we know that the work that you do is hard, and um, and that, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. You know, I think a lot of us have gotten to, you know, I, I go, I can look back in my career and think of a few times that, you know, you know, that was, I could have done things a little bit differently. And what's helped me get through that too is, is, you know, obviously you want to have good supervisors and things like that too. But, um, you know, I've, I've learned too, from, you know, being part of ASCA and learning from my colleagues about better ways to do the work that I've, that I've done or even things that I thought I was doing well. Um, and so just always being open to knowing that, you know, there may be a better way to do something. Um, And and because you can be so – you can get so mild, kind of just cloistered on your own campus uh, because our systems are kind of unique. And so you just think about the way things that you do at your place. And sometimes just going to a presentation and seeing someone do something that you do a lot and they do it in a very different way can open up so many different options in your head and kind of reinvigorate, you know, Kind of how you approach your work um and so that's why i was i'm always excited to go to the conference in february because i you know from the point where i was an assistant director to now i come back with something that i'm like you know what that's uh that's something interesting that we could do that i wasn't thinking about so just being open to that and and kind of embracing those opportunities
0: excellent and sean we always like to close with asking our guests what you are currently reading
1: <laughs> so well, you know, I've got two kids at home, so a lot of my reading is 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 done to them um, at nighttime before going to bed. But um, Your excuses, <laughs> yeah. So, so and and you know, I commute into New York from Connecticut, so a lot of my reading too happens to be through audiobooks. So I know my next book up because I try to I my audiobooks I try to rotate between something that's kind of maybe you know less intensive and just more fun, um, and then I try to do something that is. Uh, good for work and, and professional development and things like that. So I'm actually about to start reading on the, an audiobook for my commute, um, the new education by Kathy Davidson's, So just kind of about higher ed and the future of higher ed, which, um, you know, in my current role, kind of looking at institutionally institutional decisions. So I'm kind of looking at that perspective, I did just finish a little bit ago on an audiobook, um, a book called the culture code, which I found was, which was, you know, really interesting. um, and I think it's by Daniel Coyle just kind of talked about successful organizations and kind of the common threads, whether that be – I think they look from companies to organizations to, you know, even like military units. Like what are the common threads between groups that succeed and those that don't? Um, I know I'm reading – to my to one of my daughters right now, I'm also reading The Hobbit. So we're, we are reading that together. Um, and my oldest daughter is a big fan of the Rick Riordan books, like uh, – uh, the Percy Jackson books and the books and those he has, a, he has a bunch of series in that. So we're reading one of those right now. So those are my those are my readings right now for you, Joe.
0: <laughs> and Sean, if folks would like to reach you after the show airs, how can they get a hold of you?
1: Sure, um, you can get a hold of me through um, through ASEA, so that's, that's always available. You can go on the website and uh, e- you know email our staff. Um, also I'm, a, I'm accessible through um, sean.caher so that's S-E-A-N-N dot K-A-L-A-G-H-E-R at gmail.com um, and then you can find me on Twitter as well at um, uh, my Twitter handle is sean S-E-A-N-N, um, S-A. So that's the uh, my Twitter handle.
0: And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can tweet us at ASCAPodcast. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Sean, for sharing your viewpoint. Thanks, Jill. Next week, on the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, we welcome Christine Simone. Christine currently serves as the ASCA Deputy Director as well as the 2019 Annual Conference Chair. She'll be talking to us all about the conference and what we can expect as we make our way to Jacksonville. Hope you come back. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me. Produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Meter. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCAPodcast or by email at ascapodcast at gmail.com.